Let's pray this morning and let's go to the Lord's word and look at the reign of the coming Son of Man. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now this morning. Our hearts bursting with information and joy and truth from the truths that we have sung, the truths that we have heard and contemplated. We sung together over two dozen hymns this in the past two days. Now add this morning, Lord, we, we have sung together 30 sometimes. And so our hearts are overflowing with truth. We have heard five and six hours of truth from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that the impact on our lives is palpable, that it is tangible, that it makes us more holy, more eager to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning as we consider the coming of the King of all the kings, the Son of Man, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be turned toward the future, our hearts would be turned heavenward to think upon this glorious day that is coming when we will behold our God, Son of God, Son of Man. We pray in His name, Amen. The great scheme of redemption requires Christ's return. It is part of that scheme that as He came once with a sin offering, He should come a second time without a sin offering. That as He came once to redeem, He should come a second time to claim the inheritance which He has so dearly bought. He came once that His heel might be bruised. He comes again to break the serpent's head. And with a rod of iron to dash his enemies in pieces as potter's vessels, he came once to wear the crown of thorns. He must come again to wear the diadem of universal dominion. He comes to the marriage supper. He comes to gather his saints together. He comes to glorify them with himself on this same earth where once he and they were despised and rejected of men. Make you sure of this, that the whole drama of redemption cannot be perfected without this last act of the coming of the King. The complete history of paradise regained requires that the new Jerusalem should come down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it also requires that the heavenly bridegroom should come riding forth on his white horse, conquering and to conquer, King of kings and Lord of lords, Amidst the everlasting hallelujahs of saints and angels, it must be so. The man from Nazareth will come again. None shall spit in his face then, but every knee shall bow before him. The crucified shall come again, and though the nail prints will be visible, no nails shall then fasten his dear hands to the tree. But instead thereof, he shall grasp the scepter of universal sovereignty, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Those are the words of our dear brother, Charles Spurgeon. He insisted that when you consider the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation together, that both find their consummation in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. The return of Christ, the man who is God, God who is man, to rightly rule his world. 
I'd like to try to cap off our weekend together by looking at the end result, the logical final step, and the reasoning behind the doctrine of the humanity of Christ. And that is Christ's coming kingly reign as a human king on the earth. And Scripture has much to say about this. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll arrive there in a moment. Genesis 1, Jesus died as a man. And of paramount importance to our salvation is the fact that he was raised from the dead as a man. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. These verses place the death and resurrection of Christ in equal proximity concerning our salvation. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So if it was Christ's death that dealt with our sin, what was the significance of his resurrection for our salvation? Well, the answer is found in understanding the two obstacles that sin represents. The first obstacle, sin creates an unpayable penalty that's owed to God. That's a huge obstacle. It's unpayable. And the second obstacle is that sin creates an insurmountable consequence. So an unpayable penalty and an insurmountable consequence, both the penalty and the consequence are the same thing. Death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then the penalty for sin is still being paid and the consequence of sin is still being experienced. And so his death must be accompanied by his physical resurrection to demonstrate the payment is complete. And this brings us to the huge importance of the humanity of Christ because God cannot die. But God, as a man, has died for our sins. The atonement requires a a human payment. It requires a, a human victory. But the resurrection of Christ as a man is not only for the completion of the salvation of all who would trust in him for forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Christ as a man paves the way for his earthly reign as Christ on earth. As a man, a human king whom we will serve and to whom we can relate. So how do we go about looking at this? A number of weeks ago, we looked at the sovereignty of God in Scripture and we walked through something like 136 verses in Scripture to show the the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. A little interesting side note here. Uh, We have some wonderful listeners online and sometimes I get emails from them and sometimes they're friendly critiques or criticisms. And I I got some communications about that sermon that said it was a slanted sermon all about the doctrine of election. If you listen very carefully to that sermon, I did not use the word election one time. We just read the Bible and let it speak for itself. If the Bible used the word election, we read it. So it's interesting to me that by simply reading the Bible and never once using the term election, even those who don't believe in the doctrine of election thought we were preaching on the doctrine of election. Why? Because we read the Bible. You've been saturated in the doctrine of the humanity of Christ this weekend. So in similar fashion to what we did a few weeks ago, maybe toned down a little bit. I'd like to go through a number of familiar passages and just let the Bible speak for itself concerning the human reign of Christ on earth. I don't have an outline for you. I don't have a progression. We're just going to let scripture speak to us. And, and my hope is that you can just enjoy the panorama, just enjoy the view of a few passages in scripture which speak to 
the coming reign of a human being named Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. We will finish our time by turning to one key passage that I started yesterday morning, but we didn't finish it. And so we'll finish that this morning. So let's start in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And again, I don't have an outline for you. We're just going to walk through the Bible together. Mostly in book order, we'll, we'll skip around a little bit. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that, we, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Man, as represented by the first man, Adam, was to fill the earth, he was to rule the earth, and he was to subdue the earth. And you might know here that the command to fill the earth means ruling and subduing applies to their descendants as well. Mankind was to be God's mediator to the earth, to rule from the earth and to rule over the earth. We weren't created to rule from heaven like some sort of angelic being. We weren't created to rule an invisible spiritual realm. Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. And so Adam, as man's representative, you know the story, he failed. He fell for Satan's deception and he plunged the world into the curse of sin. And mankind can only rule as God's representative while being in total right relationship with God. He cannot successfully rule while being alienated from God. And ever since then, human beings have attempted to rule as God's mediator and we failed every time. Including even the theocratic nation of Israel, which is in the current state right now of failure as God's chosen nation in right relationship through faith in Christ. They're, they're not there. But God never abandons a plan. God has never had a plan B. God has never abandoned the plan that mankind will rule the earth. A successful mediatorial kingdom will happen and it must happen. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 4, confirms that even fallen mankind still holds the rights to rule the earth. We have that right. What is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 tells us that mankind will rule the world in the next age. That, that we will be ruling. So how will the Genesis 1, 26 through 28 kingdom mandate, how will it finally be successful? Well, it will be successful through Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the perfect representative of all mankind. He'll make it happen as the perfect God-man. Matthew twenty five thirty one gives us this great hope. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And then, because the perfect Son of Man has earned the right to rule, all who are united with Him in salvation, we will rule as well. 
that fulfills the mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28. We will fulfill it because of Him. Revelation 5.10 says, And you made them, that is us, to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So, right at the beginning of the Bible, literally 26 verses in, we have the mandate to mankind to rule the earth. But when Adam failed, and as mankind's federal head or representative brought sin into the world, God would have to supply the perfect man to stand in Adam's place and pave the way for those by faith, in this perfect man to rule with him. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We'll go backwards from there a bit and then forwards for the rest of our time. Daniel chapter 7. We'll look specifically at verse 9 and then at several other verses. We're in the midst of the visions that God has given Daniel concerning the future of the nations. And how these nations will have dominion for a time, but then God's going to retake it. He's going to take it away. But then the scene shifts to heaven. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. We're going from an earthly prophetic scene now to heaven. I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His clothing was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with fire. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. You have in verse 9, the Ancient of Days. This is God himself pictured with brilliant white clothing and hair, an illustration of his other holiness. His throne is like a blazing fire with wheels. This is a movable throne. This recalls for us the vision of the heavenly throne room in Ezekiel 1. Verse 10 pictures countless millions of angels attending God and God is holding court. Thousands upon thousands, myriads or tens of thousands upon tens of thousands. And what happens? The books were opened. What are the books? Revelation chapter 20, we have books there as well. They're being opened. And these are the books of the deeds of the lost and the evidence against them at the great white throne judgment. But here, the books refer to God's judgment over the major empires, which he's just explained are coming. Babylon is there. The Medo-Persian Empire is coming. The the Greek Empire is on its way. And the Roman Empire, the the four beasts of verse 3. In fact, chapter 7, 1 through 6, I won't read it to you. I'll just describe it. It tells the story of four great beasts. First of all, a lion with the wings of an eagle. That is Babylon, which would then be overcome by the bear with three ribs in its mouth. That's the Medo-Persian Empire that conquered Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. Those are likely the three ribs, as it were. The bear was taken over by the leopard. That is Alexander the Great, the Greek conqueror. He overwhelmed the Persian Empire. And the final beast, it's so fierce that it defies even having a name. Daniel, nine, Daniel 7, rather, verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong, and it had large iron teeth, It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. 
and it had ten horns. What is this beast with ten horns? Look with me at verse 19. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, extraordinarily fearsome, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, speaking great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them. Skip to verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will make low three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and wear down the saints of the, holy, the highest one, and he will intend to make changes in seasons and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. What's just happened here? We've been catapulted prophetically from a time in the past, Rome, to a time in the future in which there is one world leader leading ten other leaders and this one world leader is exacting revenge and destruction on the people of God for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. Now, our time this morning doesn't permit a full exploration of this, but when you compare this with Daniel chapter 9 and Revelation chapters 6 through 18, this is Antichrist leading what some have called a revived Roman Empire during the last half of the Great Tribulation. That's why it's totally different than any of the other kingdoms. It's coming back. But now, verse 26, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. The books are opened. The judgments on the nations. And the judgment would include the defeat of this wicked empire. Go backwards again with me to verse 11. The defeat of this wicked empire. Verse 11, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the great boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but an extension of life was given to them for an appointed season of time. So there we have the defeat of Antichrist, the defeat of this final great godless kingdom. But who will bring about this defeat? Well, this scene takes place moments prior to the second coming of Christ. Look with me at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him. The identities here cannot be mistaken. The son of God, one like a son of man. Now this is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He's like a son of man because he is a resurrected human being in heaven. He's presented to the ancient of days with God the Father pictured very rarely, by the way, in physical form with the gleaming white hair and robe. And why is the Son of Man, why is the the resurrected Jesus Christ presented to the Ancient of Days? Because it's time 
to get his reward. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is about to receive the world which he has purchased with his obedience to the Father. But other than the excitement of the impending return of Christ, why is it so important that the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days? Why is this key for us? Well, let me give you two reasons why this is important. First of all, as we've seen all weekend, Jesus the man is our perfect representative. He's our perfect representative. And and notice that our representative is, is completely welcomed and honored and glorified before the Ancient of Days. And so Jesus, the Son of Man, about to take dominion of the earth, and if I could put it this way, He's like one of us. And yet He stands in honor and in acceptance before the Ancient of Days. But just how accepted is He? Just how perfect is His representation? The second reason this is important for us is that Jesus stands before God as a man, and He also stands before God as God. The Son of Man is about to come and save the saints and take possession of the earth. But look what the one who is coming to the earth is also called. Look what the Son of Man is also called. Verse 21. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overcoming them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the season arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The Ancient of Days stands before the Ancient of Days. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. The perfect representative. And because He's the perfect representative, you are just as accepted before God as He is. The doctrine of the humanity of Christ, the doctrine of the incarnation, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, this is the only conclusion about the Son of God, fully God, fully human, Two natures in one person that makes Daniel 7 make sense. All of it revolves around the hypostatic union, the humanity of Christ and the Godhead. And we see that the humanity of Christ is absolutely necessary for Jesus to be the Son of Man, a human king to rule the world, and the Ancient of Days. It's so completely, utterly, in essence, equal to God that he gets the names of God. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. Go backwards just a little bit here. Isaiah 9. We'll revisit the passage we opened our conference with Friday evening. We're going to take a really brief series of a few stops in Isaiah to see the humanity of Christ at work in His future coming to reign over the earth. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. So a a child is born, a son is given, the self-emptying, the kenosis of Jesus predicted all the way back in Isaiah 9. But immediately you could insert after those two phrases, the child born to us, son given to us, you could insert the entirety of Jesus' life All of his ministry, the entirety of the church age in which we currently live, the entirety of the seven years of tribulation, the last three and a half of which Antichrist becomes vicious on an historic scale. We saw referenced in Daniel 7. Isaiah jumps right to the reign of the Son of God on earth. And what wondrous things we learn about his coming reign. We learn that the government will rest on his shoulders this word for government, this text here, this, these two verses, it's the only time this word is ever used in the Old Testament. And it literally means the rule or the dominion shall be upon him. That he's responsible. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that some governing concepts that we're familiar with are going to be eliminated when Christ returns. How about this? Term limits. We love term limits if you're a good Republican, I guess. Why do we love term limits? Because people are corrupt and you have to get them out before they do much damage, right? No term limits for Christ. How about this one? Balance of power. We have to have balance of power. Why? Because people are sinners. There is no balance of power in the millennial kingdom. Christ has all of it. Checks and balances. That's only necessary in a world of corrupt, selfish politicians. Not necessary with Christ ruling the world. Elections. Jesus will be the divine monarch who is king of Israel and king of all the other kings. How about the Constitution? We already have it. It is the Word of God. And ironically, the king of all the kings is also called in John chapter 1, what? The Word of God. Oh, and he has names which indicate how he will reign. He is wonderful counselor. The word wonderful, it means out of the ordinary. It means supernatural that he will require no one to give him advice on how to rule. What do all rulers on earth have? They have people around them that we call what? Advisors. Jesus will have no advisors. He will need none. He's called mighty God. This emphasizes his deity and his power. Jesus, the man, recognized gloriously as fully God on the earth. Everlasting Father. This speaks to the eternal nature of Messiah. Jesus said that if you've seen Him, you've seen the Father. This is not to confuse Jesus with God the Father, but it speaks of His care and His love for humanity as the head, the Father of all saved humanity. And He is the Prince of Peace. Verse 7 says that He will sit on the throne of His father David. Only one other king has ruled on David's throne, truly in an era of peace over a united Israel, and that's Solomon. In Hebrew, Shalomo, which means peace. Now the true Prince of Peace is seated on his father's throne. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53, of course, is that famous prophetic passage of the coming crucifixion of Christ. But right near the end of Isaiah 53, there's a Maybe sometimes overlooked portion of this account of the atonement made at the cross. And it's significant for us, particularly for the humanity of Christ as a ruler. Isaiah 53, verse 10. 
Isaiah 53.10, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if you would place his soul as a guilt offering. Stop right there. That is speaking, of course, of the death of Christ. But then we move on from his death. Second half of verse 10, He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear as he will bear their iniquities. What is this? This is the resurrection of the man Jesus. And he'll receive a reward. And what is the reward? You are. You're his reward. Verse 10, he will see his seed, those saved by the atoning work of the cross. Verse 7, he will see it and be satisfied. What does that mean? It means that because of Christ's faithfulness to be crushed by God in judgment and in death on behalf of all who would receive Christ by faith, he receives subjects into his kingdom, countless millions of subjects. And so this connects Christ's resurrection as a man with the soul satisfaction that he enjoys as ruler over all those that he bought with his own life at the cross. And I want you to notice this. Your salvation won't be some distant memory in the coming kingdom of Christ. Your salvation and and Christ's faithfulness will always and forever be a featured focal point of Christ's rule. It'll always be at the forefront that he died so that you could live. He was raised as a human so that you could live on earth as a human, resurrected just like him. Turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, this is famously the, the passage that Jesus read in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he said that that day, this passage was fulfilled in him. But you may recall that he read what we know as the first one and a half verses. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to release, to proclaim release to captives, and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And he stopped right there. Why? Because that was speaking of his first coming. And he said in that synagogue in Nazareth, early in his ministry, Today this is fulfilled. I'm here. But now, at his return, his judgment and his justice are highlighted, beginning in the second line of verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, that is Jerusalem, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning. But I want you to notice this. Verse 1 says that the Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon him. Remember, that's a very human statement of Jesus' reliance upon the Holy Spirit. The human King, Jesus Christ, will continue to walk in the Spirit perfectly, just as he did on earth the first time. We read this earlier. I want to have you turn with me now to Zechariah 14 again, right near the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, if you get to Matthew, slam on the brakes and go back two books. Zechariah 14, the stunning prophetic account of the return of Christ. I read it earlier because I'm going to refer to a lot of the verses and I don't want to take the time to read it all for you though. Our dear, wonderful brother, John Calvin, 
who is ever eager to point Scripture toward the spiritual aspects of the kingdom of God. And we appreciate that about his ministry. In his sermons on Zechariah 14, he asserts that the kingdom is spiritual. And that Zechariah 14 is metaphorical and symbolic in nature. He says that this picture of God actually being physically present during this time of judgment is just so that we can better understand God's character. And that the truths he extracts about the church and about God, they they are true and they are glorious. But the meaning of the text is plain. It's obvious. Because Zechariah 14, when you simply observe the text with the most plain and normative reading, it's saturated in the humanity of Christ because the theme of the whole chapter is the physical return of the Son of God. For example, verse 4. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You get the sense that that Zechariah is making certain, he's adding so many details to make certain we know this is literal. This is what's actually happening. This is humanity. His feet standing on the Mount of Olives. Outside Jerusalem. What's the spiritual meaning of that? It means his feet. This isn't an anthropomorphic symbol as if God had feet. Like the hand of God or the eyes and ears of God used figuratively to describe the invisible God the Father. No, these are feet. Whose feet are they? Verse 3, Yahweh will go forth. This is God who is man who is God. You cannot reduce the glory of the the judging return of Christ to something less than his physical return to a physical place. And, And this is where I just want to rifle through this for you. Look at the clear physical nature of the whole passage. Verse two, nations, houses, city, city. Verse three, nations. Verse four, feet, Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, mountain. Verse five, valley, mountains, valley, mountains. Verse eight, waters, Jerusalem, sea, summer, winter. And I'll read verse nine. Verse nine says, and Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And in that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name one over all the earth. That means on the earth. It means you're placed upon it. Verse 10, land, plain, Jerusalem, Benjamin's gate, the first gate, the corner gate, the tower of Hananel. Verse 11, Jerusalem. Verse 12, Jerusalem. Verse 14, Judah, Jerusalem, nations, gold, silver. Verse 15, horse, mule, camel, donkey, cattle, camps. Verse 16, nations, Jerusalem. Verse 17, earth, Jerusalem. Verse 18, Egypt, rain. Verse 19, Egypt, nations. Verse 20, Horses, bells of the horses, pots, bowls. Verse 21, pots, Jerusalem, Judah. This is physical. This is real. It's as if Zechariah said, okay, for all those guys who are going to try to spiritualize this text, we're going to make this as earthy as we possibly can. And who is the star? Who is the central feature of this drama on the earth? Verse 1. Yahweh. Verse 3, Yahweh will go forth and fight. Verse 4, His feet stand on the earth. 
Verse 5, then Yahweh, my God, will come. Verse 7, Yahweh. Verse 9, Yahweh will be king on the earth. Yahweh will be the only one. Verse 12, Yahweh will plague all the peoples who stood against him. Verse 13, confusion from Yahweh upon his enemies. Verse 16, worshiping the king, Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem. Verse 17, worshiping the king, Yahweh of hosts in Jerusalem. Verse 18, Yahweh pouring plagues on the disobedient. Verse 20, holy to Yahweh. Verse 21, holy to Yahweh. Verse 21, the house of Yahweh of hosts. Zechariah 14 shouts to us, Jesus the man who is Yahweh, God of all the ages. On the earth, with real feet. Turn to Mark 13, 31. In Mark 13, 31, we get to one of those mysteries about the humanity of Christ, which we dare not try to fully explain, but we simply let it point us to the wonder and awe that we're to have in the plan of God. This is unexplainable. It is simply true. Mark 13, 31. This is Jesus speaking. Mark 13, 31, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let me stop right there. Heaven and earth will pass away. What is he talking about? Well, he's going all the way forward. He's fast forwarding all the way to the, the, the decimation of the old creation and the recreation of the new earth and the new heavens. That This is a, a way of saying judgment is coming. That there's going to be a day when God delivers retribution to all who have stood against him. And so it's just a general term that says judgment is coming. And we would include in this the second coming of Christ. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 32 is where it blows our minds. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. It's interesting that Jesus voluntarily laid aside his divine right to know the exact timing. Why? We don't know for certain, but the most likely reason is that he does so to completely identify with us. Look at verse 33. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. That like us, Jesus himself will be on guard and spiritually awake to identify with us. And by including himself in that statement as one who didn't know the exact timing of his own return, the Lord Jesus was not denying his deity whatsoever. Instead, he was acknowledging the self-imposed restraints of his, on his divine nature. In his humiliation, God the Son voluntarily restricted the full exercise of his divine attributes and prerogatives. Just a little side note here. For all who want to try to set dates for the return of Christ, you should take note that Christ didn't set dates for the return of Christ. He deferred to the will and plan of his Father, just like we ought to. When will Christ return? When his Father tells him to. Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We referenced Luke 1 briefly yesterday. I just want to show you the clear humanity of Christ indicated in this passage on the coming rule of Christ on earth, Luke 1, verse 30. The clear humanity of Christ in his rule, Luke 1, verse 30. 
And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. The name Jesus, this is associated with Mary bearing a human son from her human womb. Verse 32, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He is the Son of the Most High, his divine identification. He will receive the throne of his father David, his human role, his human reward. Verse 33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's Israel. And there will be no end of his kingdom. This identifies him as the king of Israel. For how long? No end to his kingdom. King Jesus has no heirs. There will be no other king. He will always be the king. Turn to John 17. John 17, that great and glorious high priestly prayer of Jesus but I want to point out an important human element in this prayer. John 17, verse 9. Listen for the human element here. John 17, verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. One of the works God the Father has given Jesus to do is the work of intercession, of praying for those who belong to the Father and have been given to the Son. And in fact, Jesus gets extremely specific in his prayers for you as God's elect. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I want you to notice a few features of this request. It's, it's rich for us. First of all, Jesus addresses his father once again. Why is that important? This isn't just a mindless prayer habit. Um, sometimes when we pray, we may tend to repeat words like father or Lord over and over again just as a habit. Jesus never spoke an ill-timed word or an uncalled-for word. So before this request, he's starting a new thought. He's readdressing his father. Second feature we would see is that he expresses a desire. This is a Greek word that simply means he wishes to have it happen. It's very important because Jesus has already fulfilled the qualification to have his wishes granted. In John 15, 10, Jesus says that he's kept his father's commandments and abided in his love, meaning that Jesus has fully qualified himself to ask for anything he wants. And what does he desire? The third feature Jesus wants you to see His glory. Not His glory as written in the Scriptures. Not His glory in a dream. Not His glory in a vision. Not as described in a sermon. Not as imagined in your hearts and in your minds. Jesus wants you to see His glory where He is. In other words, He wants you to be with Him. This isn't a metaphorical, invisible God with you. This is the reality of being in the same physical proximity as Jesus Christ. Yes, you will see His glory in heaven at the end of your life, but it will be on earth that you see His glory as Christ the King. That you see Him functioning as the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, 
and the Prince of Peace. That's where His glory will be revealed as the ruler of all. And what a thrill that will be. Turn to Acts chapter 1. In Acts 1, we have an interesting little geographic connection to our earlier text in Zechariah 14, in which we saw Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, which is apparently the arrival point of the second coming of Christ, just outside of Jerusalem. Acts 1, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And where were the disciples standing with Jesus when he ascended into heaven? Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's the, that's the Mount of Olives. That Jesus is going to return to exactly the same spot from which he left. Now let me give you some important notes about this. I want you to notice that Jesus will return the same way. In the glorified body which was raised from the dead. Literally to the same spot. But I want you to know this very carefully. The the wording here is very precise. The angels, listen to this, they did not say, you will see Jesus return the same way as you saw him go. Why? Because the resurrected saints will be with him. You won't see him return in the sense of looking up. You'll be with him when he returns. And if we want to be geographic about it, I guess we would say, you're not going to see him by looking up, you'll see him by looking down, because you're following him. And what was the response of the disciples to hearing that Jesus is going to return in the same way he left? Verse 14, these all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer. The hope of the return of Christ in all his glory is our motivation for prayer And according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, it is to be a source of comfort. Let's skip a bit ahead to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation 10, I want to spend a moment looking now at the moments preceding the glorious return of Christ from several different texts in Revelation. Revelation 10 verse 7. Again, a moment before the glorious return of Christ. Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he proclaimed good news to his slaves, the prophets. Notice, the the mystery of God is finished. Keep that in your mind for a moment. Turn to the next chapter, Revelation 11, verse 15. Now we come to a scene in heaven at which at which time the world now is just days or weeks from the return of Christ. But what is the mystery of God? That which has been announced by the prophets for millennia from back in chapter 10, verse 7. For 2,000 years, since Jesus taught us, believers have prayed, Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the angel is saying, get ready. The answer to that prayer is here. When the seventh trumpet sounds, Revelation 11, verse 15, 
Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the moment when Christ gets ready to invade His planet and judge those who are breathing His air, eating His food, walking on His dirt, drinking His water, blaspheming His name, and killing His people, Christ will not be a mystery anymore. Why? Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. Turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, there's another important camera angle, so to speak, at approximately the same moment in heaven. Revelation 14 verse 14 Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who is that we're seeing in verse 14? Now, verse 15 says, another angel came out of the sanctuary. So who is this this other angel? Well, verse 14 is called an angel in verse 15. But really, there's only two choices. This is an actual angel in verse 14, or it's Jesus Christ himself ready to execute justice. And we would have to say this is Christ himself in verse 14. We're obviously reminded of Daniel 7, 13, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. We're reminded of Matthew 24, 30, in which Jesus says the wicked people on earth at the end of the great tribulation, quote, will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory he has a golden crown on his head that indicates royalty that's a symbol of a victory in his glorified role as king and judge he has a sharp sickle that fits the role of christ as the reaper at the end of the age and the angel of verse 15 this is a real angel he's come out of the heavenly sanctuary judgment day headquarters and he has orders Verse 15, and another angel came out of the sanctuary crying out with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sits on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Now some have difficulty with an angel coming out of the sanctuary in heaven telling Christ what to do. These are instructions from an angel who just came out of the heavenly temple bringing official word from God the Father. Jesus, almighty, all-knowing God, is still obedient to his Father and his Father has already told him that the time would be announced. Remember, Mark 13, 32, but of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. We know for certain that while Jesus was on earth, he self-limited so as to not have this knowledge. Whether that extended into heaven or not is debated. But in either case, Jesus is receiving divine notification that the time has arrived. And what does he do at that moment? Turn to Revelation 19. At this moment, we see him girding up, the dressing and preparing for battle Revelation 19, verse 11. I dare say I've read this passage aloud more than any other at Grace Bible Church. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. Now remember, something can be taken as symbolic in Scripture when it almost certainly is ridiculous to take it literally. We would not take... Uh, verse 15, that Jesus actually has a sword sticking out of his mouth. I remember reading this as a kid, and that, that just so confused me because I didn't understand symbolic language and metaphor. It symbolizes, obviously, the, the weaponry of his words. But the other side is true also. If something is not ridiculous, and it can feasibly be taken literally, you don't just jump to making it symbolic. So I have a, I have a question for you relevant to the humanity of Jesus. Is Jesus really astride a heavenly white horse? Many have brushed this off quickly as merely symbolic, that the white horse is symbolic of victory. And I would agree that particularly in the book of Revelation, the color white is symbolic of purity, holiness, and victory. But does that mean it can't be a real horse? Consider this. Elijah was accompanied to heaven by horses and chariots that were fiery in appearance. These were real animals created by God and able to span the distance from heaven to earth and earth to heaven. Consider this. Jesus has already presented himself as Israel's king once, and he rode on the colt of a donkey in humility. Why would he not come now in judgment and glory on a heavenly steed befitting his glorious splendor? I would imagine heavenly horses would be quite a bit more spectacular. In Revelation, things that are white tend to be blindingly bright. Jesus' hair, the righteous robes of the saints, the great white throne. So a white horse is probably not your garden variety clip-clop, clip-clop. Probably more like white hot flame. But my point is this. Remember that the angels in Acts 1 told the apostles who had just witnessed the ascension of Christ, remember the precision of their words. This Jesus, the one who just went up, will come in the same way. What does that mean? It means Jesus is not returning in spirit. He's not returning as some heavenly giant of some sort. He's returning as a glorified man. And so it makes the most sense that this is a glorified, real, actual white horse created by God, perhaps For just this moment. In fact, verse 16. He has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now I've said this before. King of Kings and Lord of Lords is tied to Old Testament passages also where God is called the God of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there's an element of deity to this phrase, the King of all the Kings and the Lord of all the Lords. But this is so important. The whole context of Revelation 19 is the God-man returning. When he is the King of all the Kings and Lord of all the Lords, we cannot forget the fact that he is the human King of all the human kings and the human Lord of all the human lords. This is his humanity, not just his deity. 
It is a human name. Well, I know we've run out of Bible, but I want to close out our time looking at the humanity of Christ by having us return to the ultimate text on the topic. We didn't finish it yesterday. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, yesterday morning we looked at the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ as a man. Let's just remind ourselves of that part. Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who also exist, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But there's a result. It doesn't stop there. There's a result. There's a reward for the man, Christ Jesus. Here's the reward. Verse 9, Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He's exalted. It's a word that means he's lifted up. Three days after his death, Jesus was raised from the dead. Forty days later, at his ascension, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Later in Hebrews 1, the author explains that God said, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies a footstool for your feet. But not only was Jesus exalted, he's given this name that is above every other name. And Paul, and be very clear about this, doesn't tell us what this name is. It's not Jesus. It's a surprise that will await us in heaven. It's a name that declares Jesus to be Lord, that proclaims His majesty and His might and His authority, His honor, His sovereignty, His deity, His humanity. It's a name we've never heard. It's a name so glorious that this name becomes a a climactic point in the exaltation of Christ. The book of Revelation, early on, chapters 2 and 3, tells us that this name is not yet known. And at the utterance of this name, the total dominion of Christ as Lord of all is accomplished. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, when this powerful new name is spoken, three groups will submit and confess that Jesus is the king of all the kings. Those in heaven The holy angels saved humans from all ages. Those who have been worshiping Jesus as Lord for a long time already. If you know Christ as your Savior, this is already your joy. This is already your mandate to worship the King. Those on earth. Christ will judge the unbelievers left on earth. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9 tells us that. And Christ will be the object of wonder and, and, and awe and worship by the saints on the earth. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 says that he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed and those under the earth, fallen angels, the unsaved dead who await final judgment and they'll be brought to the throne of King Jesus called in Revelation the great white throne and they will acknowledge his lordship right before he judges them. And as Christ sets up this kingdom on earth, Knowing the full story, what was the point of the kenosis? What was the point 
of the self-emptying of Christ? What was the point of God coming down as a man? The story of Jesus is a story of condescending to the lowest point possible, to the death that you deserve. You ready for this? So that he could purchase for you what he has always had. For me personally, this study has been one of the most fascinating and worship-producing studies I've ever experienced. And I, I really wrestled with how to sum up six hours of messages. Let me see if I can give it a shot. In the old covenant between Israel and God, this was a covenant characterized by distance. It's characterized by distance. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, God called them Moses, but then said, do not come near here. Moses had to keep distance from holy God. When God brought Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, God strictly instructed Moses, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Distance. In the tabernacle and later the temple, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies where the official presence of God resided. Every other Israelite went their whole lives never coming anywhere near the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Distance. So much of the law of Moses emphasized the holiness of God and the distance between holy God and unholy people. Lepers are to be outside the camp, everyone being considered ceremonially unclean just because they go about their daily lives. Even priests being burned to death because they try to close the gap. But when Christ came in the flesh as a man, And when he made a way for full fellowship through a substitutionary death. Now this is what we hear. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near. No more distance. The man, Jesus Christ, has no walls, no distance, no barriers. And the coming kingdom, that will always be the case. I don't know if you have them with you or not, but if you looked at your steadfast Bible conference booklet, the cover of your booklet was adorned with a painting. It was a painting by Antonio Ciceri, done in 1871. It's a Swiss-Italian painter. And it's a picture of Pontius Pilate pointing Jesus out to the crowds. And the painting is called, Behold the Man. You remember Jesus when he was on earth and he said, let the little children come to me and toddlers going up and climbing on Jesus' lap with joy and delight. That will be you. That will be you. That, it'll be you to be what the, the apostles were, to walk alongside him, to sit at his feet, to enjoy the, the physical, visible presence, to see in his actual eyes the love for His children, to hear the actual voice of Jesus Himself teaching and comforting and instructing and encouraging and ruling and leading, to touch the hands with the scars from the nails on the cross. You shall behold the man. Our Father, we look forward to that day And we would pray along with the Apostle John.
Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come soon. We fully bow before our Savior Jesus Christ as Yahweh, fully God. And for all eternity, we will relate to Him as fully man. What a day that will be when we see His eyes, His hands, His feet. And when we behold the man. We thank you and praise you in His name. Amen.